0: Hello and welcome to MedTalk. My name is Neha. I'm one of the medical students at University of Western Australia and today's episode is slightly different to our usual episode but it's a very important topic. We're going to be talking about mental health in medicine and joining me today are a very experienced group of panellists who I'll introduce. First of all, we've got Professor Sean Hood who's the head of psychiatry at University of Western Australia Medical School and Associate Dean with the Faculty of Health and Medical Science. Professor, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks very much. Glad to be here.
0: I thought we could start by um, what you do for your own mental health.
1: It's an interesting question because, Mm. as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist, and when we go into psychiatry training, one of the questions we always get asked for those who are thinking of doing this is exactly that, how do we manage our own mental health? And we're supposed to show that we have a broad range of resources to draw on, Mm -hmm. which means not drinking excessively, having a good group of friends, um, having uh, activities outside of the workplace to diffuse some of the really tough stuff that goes on during the day. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have a particularly good group of friends and family to help buffer me with those.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Our second panellist is Dr. Kaelin Hooper. Dr. Hooper is currently an intern at Fiona Stanley Hospital after graduating from UWA last year and is one of the initiators of the Push-Up Challenge, which aims to engage and educate people in mental and physical health. Kaelin, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you, very much How
2: for having are you? Me. Yeah, excited to be here.
0: Could you share with us what you like to do for your mental health promotion?
2: Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this and mm-hmm. I think sometimes the temptation is to list a bunch of activities and something I struggle with is that they too can become a bit competitive and perfectionistic for me. Um, so the things that I do that I have to manage and keep relaxing are things like I like to run. Mm-hmm. I find cooking can in no way become competitive, so I like doing that. Yeah. As well, and I read a lot. I agree, cooking can be very
0: therapeutic. And our next panelist is Dr. Helen Wilcox, who's the program director of the MD course at UWA and head of medical education unit within the medical school. So, as a GP, with a particular interest in doctor's health. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wilcox. It's my pleasure. Would you like to share with us what you do for your mental health?
3: Well, like Kaylin, I was also thinking about this, and like Kaylin, I also mm-hmm. run a lot and uh, cook a lot and hang out with the friends and the dog a lot. But I, I agree with you that you can come up with a list of, of what we do for our mental health. But I think the thing that you acquire the longer you spend in medicine is how you do it. And I think what I've learned to do over the years is shorten the latency in between working out when I'm not doing particularly well and putting in place my strategies. And I think that's probably the difference between one of the differences between an experienced practitioner and perhaps someone who is new to the mental pressures um, that medicine uh, evolves. And maybe that's one of the things that we'll talk about as we go along how to interpret your own functioning and to understand the flags that perhaps things aren't going so well and how to act early on those kinds of things. So yes, your latency gets less and less and less and soon you can act before things go start going wrong. You can act prospectively, which is the holy grail.
0: Yeah, and that's really important, isn't it? Having that balance and being self-aware of your own feelings. And on that same note, I'd like to start with a bit of a trigger warning for our listeners that this episode will include discussion of mental health issues and certain topics maybe of distress. So as you're listening to this discussion please make sure you're being aware of your feelings and taking care of yourself whether that's pausing the episode and coming back to it or reaching out for help and if you're worried about yourself or someone else please don't hesitate to seek help and one of the really good resources to do that is by calling Lifeline on 131114 for crisis support. I'd like to start with just a bit of context around the episode and we wanted to start this conversation and have this open discussion about mental health in medicine because we know that medical students have higher rates of mental illness when compared to the general population and numerous studies have shown us that including a 2016 meta-analysis in JAMA which found that among medical students worldwide the rates of depression was nearly five times higher. There was also a Beyond Blue National Mental Health Survey of Doctors and Medical Students in 2013. And one of the very important findings was that medical students perceive that there are very stigmatising attitudes regarding doctors with mental health conditions. And we know that there are other factors uh, that come into play as well, including fears of professional implications, potential consequences of disclosing mental health diagnosis on obtaining things like registration, the stigma that still pervades and the showing vulnerability is sometimes seen as a weakness or liability. So I thought uh, we could start by discussing what elements factor into medical studies which make it particularly stressful and demanding and what effect that can have on students mental health dr wilcox i might start with you
3: sure so i think you can look at this in a psychiatric formulation framework mm-hmm. which is going to give me the opportunity to throw to sean quite soon um and i think there's there's predisposing factors uh that um that accompany um young people into medicine and that and that can be around, they may have their own very high standards for themselves and be, um, to have a, a critical attitude towards themselves which is why they have managed to achieve academic uh, success and prowess and they also may have a tendency towards you know, self-discipline, self-sacrifice which again enables them to put the work in to uh, achieve academically. And they may also have a sense of um, quite profound altruism and the desire to do good and the desire to, to look after others and and to an extent that over time when additional stressors are added in that can accord them to neglect their own self. So I think that's the, that's the set up for some young people coming into to medicine and I think throughout all the things we're going to say here I think it's really important to say that not everything we talk about will apply to every student who is undertaking medicine. I think we talk about some patterns of behaviour but there are many. Uh, young people who thrive when they join the course thrive throughout the course. There are other young people who enter the course with perhaps some challenging circumstances, but the experiences they have, the personal growth that comes, the sense of achievement that comes, actually means that they end the course happier than when they start. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge variety of how people travel uh, while they're in the course. Look, I think so. I think there's some of the predisposing factors. And I, I think then we, I guess, we look at the environment of a student, and I'm going to speak more. I'm not just going to speak about medicine at UWA. I'm going to speak about what we know about medical students across Australia and New Zealand. And there's long hours. There's long semesters. There's uh, the cognitive load. There's um, there's a sense of competition. There's uh, intermittent uh, teaching by um, harsher forms of feedback that may may well be warranted so I think there's there's the, and then there is also the need to balance those pressures with whatever other whatever other pressures are happening in your personal life and your financial life um, mm-hmm. so there's just it's demanding you know cognitively psychologically emotionally and financially um, it is a challenging environment in which to thrive mentally, I would say.
0: Absolutely. There's a lot on the plate. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Dr Hooper, and what was your perspective as a student, recent graduate?
2: Um, I guess what I found like interesting in the transition between med student to intern this year and perhaps also as a med student as well is that uh, I guess the healthcare system is... Like, operates on scarce resources; it's mm-hmm. always stretched, and I think in a lot of ways it relies upon those traits that um, Helen just mentioned in in us in order to sustain it. Yeah. Um, so the people who operate best for the system are probably also the people who are going to get hurt by it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes through in med school as well. The people who do really well in med school are the ones who will stay up later and um Mm. you know work harder and and always be seeking out more opportunity and more learning and i think that you know that's amazing but it comes Mm. at a a personal cost Cost, yeah
0: so in the way we pre-select those qualities don't we profit what would be your opinion
1: yeah look i want to reinforce what both of our panelists have said in fact i was thinking similarly um many years ago in french uh, voltaire apparently said you know the perfect is the enemy of the good Mm. And we certainly see perfectionism and perfectionistic traits highly overrepresented in people wanting to do medicine. You know, uh, being a medical doctor is a high esteem position. We have far, far more uh, applicants for positions than we have training positions anywhere in the world. And so we have a very tight bottleneck for, for applicants to get through to get there. And being obsessional being able to meet those entry requirements is, um, is just one of the ways that medical schools have selected. Uh, medical students. Problem with that is that we know obsessionality is one of the strongest uh, risk factors for developing depressive disorders uh, mm-hmm. later in life. And as we also heard, unfortunately, the particularly the public health system that we work in, uh, anywhere in Australia or most of the world really, um, are under resourced uh, and are not set up to um, meet the expectations of the altruistic. Um, applicants who go into medicine to help and make a difference, at least at all times. There are successes and joys that we have in those jobs, but you know, when you run into a brick wall, uh, it can be really demoralising, whether it's a patient outcome that's not as good as you hoped, or a lack of a resource that you think would be in your patient's best interest. And that's thats tough.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there, lot, lots emotionally, lots physically, and, you know, just a lot of commitments to balance. We've talked a bit about why those barriers might be there um, and why um, medical students might have uh, those extra predisposition to mental health issues. What can we do to improve that and address that? Maybe we'll start with what we can do at a system level. Dr Wilcox, did you want to start us off? Uh,
3: Look, I think there's already been a lot done with very good intent and so I think there's a lot of things that now in 2021 enable the pursuit of reasonable mental health mm-hmm. um, and, and this, this may uh, relate to the availability of su- um, support services, access to specific working conditions and specific uh, placements that may be better suited towards someone's uh, personal needs Um, There's a a wealth of uh, doctors' health advisory support uh, services available, um, face-to-face, online telephone and so on. In fact, there's probably, if someone said, what's the phone number for me to call for doctor's mental health, I could probably give you 10 numbers um, Mm. and 10 avenues to to seek help off the top of my head. Um, But this is where I get to uh, bang the GP drum and say that. Um, There's a lot out there for secondary prevention. There's a bit of stuff out there for tertiary prevention, like what we do when a doctor becomes impaired and how we reintegrate them into the workforce once we've made an assessment. But the space that there needs to be the most work in the coming years is around that primary prevention space and actually setting up uh, mentally healthy medical schools, medical programs, and setting up mentally healthy uh, workforces and modelling mentally healthy behaviours on the part of senior leadership and uh, even small interactions with senior medical practitioners are uh, not reinforcing the self sacrificial behaviors that we we often put forward to that we often put forward, and also as i guess as part of that primary French you know, looking for opportunities to ease the cognitive load and the psychological load that is placed on young people so I think that 's where the major space has to happen but i think at, at the moment I'd venture to say that. <laughs> much like a secondary or tertiary hospital. We have a good secondary or tertiary system. Yep. The primary prevention of mental health problems in young doctors, I think, is currently a bit underdone.
0: It's lacking. Yeah, absolutely.
3: But you may disagree, <laughs> Kaylin and Sean. Yes.
2: Do you? <laughs> Dr. Hooper, what do you think? No, I don't disagree. Yeah. I think um, that it's very much a culture and a, an approach of just keep on trying until it all collapses yeah um and i think i I mean obviously i don't have as much experience on a system level Mm -hmm. um but on a personal level this year the biggest thing like we learned a lot about mindfulness techniques and um and a lot about you can do things like practicing gratitude or trying to be in the moment things like that but the biggest thing for me this year has been uh like practicing deliberate forgiveness of myself Mm -hmm. um because that's pretty much an intern job is <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're going to fail pretty yeah. often yeah. and you're going to feel out of your depth a lot of the time and it's it's not so much about like, all those other things i had in place in med school touching base with friends exercising all of that stayed the same but what changed was the degree to which i failed on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. i like you don't fail that much in med school for the bulk of students yeah. um and yeah that changed so that's yeah. That's been a big thing for me this year,
0: and that's really difficult, isn't it, coming to terms with failure. I think even as medical students, it's it's a cohort of really high achieving people, not
1: used. I I agree. I mean, failure is an interesting one in that, uh, as you say, most medical students have never had the experience of truly failing. And in Mm -hmm. fact, in in my experience, the in postgraduate um, fellowship exams, where the the minority of 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 applicants actually pass each, each exam, like in psychiatry, traditionally is about a. A third of people pass those exams. I see people in with extreme narcissistic injury with just breaking down and crying because that's the very first exam they've failed in their entire life Mm -hmm. and unlike most of the population who you know getting 60% might be really good uh, uh, we haven't learnt the sort of strategies to deal with those sort of knocks and blows. Mm -hmm. I agree with what Helen was saying earlier as well Um, we need a diversity of Approaches, mm-hmm. a very small proportion of people will need to see someone like me, a, a you know, psychiatrist. Um, Um, uh, And, um, you know, it's an important role, but it's not really for the majority of people who are going through um, uh, medical school and uh, and internship, etc. Having a link with a good GP is really important. Helen, I agree. I did general practice liaison for five years, helping to encourage people to see their GPs Mm -hmm. and working with them with mental health issues. And, you know, having that sort of ongoing relationship where you can be honest and discuss things and not actually have to worry about the consequences of, of, of being candid um, mm. is really important for your long-term health.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting you bring up the concept of being candid. Um, we conducted an anonymous opt-in survey for current medical students um, at UWA and re- received some really insightful and important questions and comments that I thought we'd discuss. And something that came up quite often was the hesitancy and reluctancy among peers as well as um, speaking up to clinicians and colleagues about the issues they're experiencing. I think Um, in medical school, in medicine in general, there is still that um, urge to not let your guard down and you have to always be this stoic person and just take it as it comes. But that, as you said, comes at a personal cost. Uh, So what can we do to encourage that dialogue, encourage those conversations and, you know, make people... ..make the environment more comfortable for people to speak up in?
1: I think...
3: And I'll start this off, and this actually Mm. refers back to a conversation that the four of us were just having before we started uh, recording today, which is about understanding the facts about what is and what isn't required in terms of reporting mental health concerns to other people or being reported as Mm -hmm. having mental health concerns by the authorities. And I think when I was looking through some of the um, anonymous questions that were posed by uh, students, um, I saw repeatedly, will having mental health treatment affect my prospects of getting a job as an intern? Will receiving uh, mental health um, mean that I have to make a notification to APRA if I receive mental health treatment and then I am subject of uh, a medical defence complaint in the future? Will that be held against me? And Mm -hmm. I think giving some factual information around that is actually probably uh, pretty um, important up front to take away that serious consequence. So I'll start start by talking about... um, Requirements when the, for the majority of uh, young people who are medical students who are having some symptoms of mental health illness, and just to to state that for there we are fortunate in Western Australia that there is not a mandatory notification requirement um, for doctors to notify APRA, our legislator, our legislator, that they are regulated, that they are treating a medical practitioner. So the sole environment under which a practitioner in WA has to make a notification about a patient that they are seeing to APRA is if there is a substantial risk of harm to the public or sexual misconduct. I just looked that up on the website right now. So uh, there is an assessment process when a a person with mental health um, need or mental health symptoms sees a practitioner, that they would make the person seeing them, so let's say the GP seeing them, would have pretty early conversation about, So how do you feel you're coping with patients, how do you feel you're going at work? And yes, we'd be, there are a very small number of people that perhaps we might get patterns of, there is some impulsivity there, there is, there may be comorbid drug and alcohol issues, um, there may be comorbid um, cognitive issues or symptoms of organic illness, which might. Um, Affect their um, their thought processes and clinical decision making, and there may be um, um, there may be a evidence of a uh, more Sean Hood level um, psychiatric illness such as psychosis or mania. Personally, personally <laughs> or professionally, <laughs> professionally, professionally, <laughs> yes. And so, yes, in those we would be asking at an assessment for whether there were any flags that any of those circumstances might be present, but for the vast majority. Of medical students or junior doctors that we see in general practice of medical health concerns those impairments are not there and the information stays confidential within the consultation unless we are subpoenaed at a later stage Mm -hmm. but there are will be of course there will be some uh, people that we do assess that there is some potential risk of impairment which is a good time for me to throw to Sean Mm -hmm. to say how is that currently managed
1: Okay, so yeah, I've got a lot of comments relating to that, that sounds, uh, it's, it's, I agree with that position Helen, um, I mean broadly we know that it's the best thing for all patients including medical practitioners to be able to be honest and candid with mm-hmm. their health professional team, uh, with their GPs and other people that they see is, you know, is ideal. And we're very lucky, I agree, in WA not to have the mandatory reporting. And I know we we worked really hard to make that the case in Western Australia, but it's not the case in all all jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Um, There, of course, are patients who get to the stage of um, either... I've had my own notes subpoenaed from time to time uh, by um, APRA and related bodies, and I have no recourse but to give them all the information that I've put down. Uh, and we also have regulatory authorities such as APRA and the GMC in the UK who um, historically used to be called sort of professional uh, regulatory organisations and one of the definitions of that of a professional body was a member of a self-regulatory organisation. That is no longer the case in, in medicine in that you are regulated largely by people who are not medical doctors and who do not place your personal well wellbeing uh, as their primary concern. They In formal and informal discussions I've had with many of these bodies, what they've said is our duty is to protect the public from rogue practitioners primarily. They don't have to follow the rule of law in terms of um, innocent to proven guilty. And and I've had a number of uh, patients who had vexation complaints against them who are doctors from patients who have had to really struggle through allegations of them being incapable or um, or not practising fairly, which has a great toll on their on their mental health. And we have patients who, um, just like in the general community, who have serious um, mental illness disorders. Look, by nature of the, uh, robust, the robustness of medical training, it is uh, unlikely that people with say, a diagnosis of a schizophrenia or something similarly um, get through medical training because of the, the nature of those disorders, but certainly we are overrepresented for um, medical care. Um, students who have bipolar traits or you know or other issues just like happens in the in the main community. Mm-hmm. Um, patients see uh, the mental health acts vary from state to state but certainly when a, a patient is assessed f- in an extreme case in a facility such as what I have here at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital and is determined to have a mental illness needing treatment and gets detained under the mental health act that has implications in terms of um, a notification etc. But that's a very rare occurrence. The only other caveat from what we were saying earlier that I wanted to sort of throw in there is that, um, is that I, I, this is my personal view, I, I don't believe that APRA is focused on um, helping individual medical practitioners. And I don't think it's entirely paranoid to say, look, if I disclose to someone such as my boss or whatever about my illness, um, that won't imp- influence me. Uh, my career in a certain direction in the future I strongly believe it shouldn't I think morally that's reprehensible for that, for that to happen uh, but there are individuals involved in some of these uh, some of these decisions there are competitive programs that people sometimes go in mm-hmm. and as you know you know when you s- work at Sir Charles Gardner or any other hospital you have to do a, a, a medical declaration form of your medical illnesses and mental mm-hmm. uh, any mental illness problems and that's because the employer has an obligation under separate um, for our regulations to provide a safe workplace and so they're able to lawfully ask you about that sort of questions. They cannot lawfully discriminate against you yep. but they also are able to discriminate lawfully in circumstances where they think you're being put into an environment which may cause you harm. E.g. you've got a, a history of a psychotic illness or psychotic breaks and working in a particularly high stress mental health area for instance might be seen as, as risky for your particular um, own health. And sadly, some of those discussions with individual um, who we report to are usually not medical practitioners are, are not always um, what I would say is, agree is, is, is morally correct. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't stop you talking to your GP and it shouldn't stop you talking to me. And I must admit, when I'm seeing medical practitioners or police officers or various people in areas where they have quite a reason to be apprehensive about information coming out, um, I write very few written notes
0: mm. Mm.
3: Mm. Yeah. Yes, and uh, two, th- two things on that um, I, I the person that um, you're seeing would be also keen to keep you well and mm-hmm. keep yeah. keep you at a stage that you never become impaired mm. to see APRA and yeah. if you if you want to look at the the reporting thing conversely it's a by seeking medical uh, help for perhaps mental health issues you are potentially reducing the chance of ever developing an impairment such that APRA would need to be notified and by continuing on uh, medical treatment after you have you know, re- recovered mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know, continuing to take your SSRI for anxiety even after you feel a little bit better you know continuing on that for another year or so to you know induce and maintain a remission that is going to keep you well in the long term and so one of, my, one of my, the, uh, my biggest challenges is, I would, I'd venture to say, not getting people in there for the first um, appointment for mental health issues. When I say people, I mean medical students and uh, doctors. Um, getting them in can be done because they're starting to get the message that you know it's important to uh, um, seek medical help for mental health issues. Getting them on to treatment, not too, not too tricky. Um, you know, rosters notwithstanding and tolerability of medications notwithstanding, getting them to continue a treatment after they feel better is hard because what people often do is, I feel better, great, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back on board, I don't, I'm don't, i good now um, because we're so used to, you know, as soon as we're minimally coping okay, our work ethic is such that we want to, you know, put ourselves out there fully again. So one of my biggest challenges is encouraging people on taking a sort of step to recovery and not trying to make their... Um, not try and give themselves a very uh, rapid trajectory out of their out of their troubles, but actually taking the time to modify their work environment, learn some of the de-escalization, de-es- personal de-escalation techniques, the deliberate forgiveness, and mm-hmm. other other similar explicit practices that Kaylin has mentioned. Mm-hmm. Spending time on learning those skills as part of their recovery, rather than saying, all right, well, I slept a bit better last night, off I go again.
0: Yeah, and just being gentler with ourselves. Yes,
2: yes. I think the other thing to think about for med students in particular Mm -hmm. is that, as um, Professor Hood mentioned, it's unfortunately it's not always going to be realistic that your direct employer is going to be a supportive person for you if you're struggling Mm -hmm. with mental health in big hospitals with a wide range of personalities and a wide range of levels of training in that area. So when you graduate at the end of the year, you're going to have a bit of time off and i think if you if this is something you're at all concerned about or if you you know want to set that up now i think that's the best time to find a gp to like absolutely (laughs) start this now so that when you're halfway through your ed term and you haven't slept for like two weeks and you're really stressed you don't have to think about yeah your Mm -hmm. process then you want your process already set and you've got a beautiful gap there Mm -hmm. in which to do so
3: yep um couldn't agree more um it's it's like preconception care, you know. That makes a healthy pregnancy. Yeah. You know, getting 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 your house in order before before internship as a baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But also, you're right. You want to make the decisions when you've got clear air, because when you're not thinking clearly, you can't make the right decisions. Because you're not thinking clearly when you're tired and stressed, and your prefrontal cortex has gone offline for a little while. I mean, having
1: having a mentor is really important. Mm. And ideally, I mean, I did. A couple of years ago, I did quite a bit of work with the uh, welfare of an ether to special interest group, which has had a lot of. Um, they have a high rates of mental health um, issues, as you're probably aware. Uh, and there's a lot of research coming out of that group, which is it's probably not ideal to have your mentor be the person who's evaluating your term Absolutely. performance and who's also the person that's going to promote you or not for the next mm-hmm. sort of rung in your ladder and internationally that's been shown as, as pretty bad but if you have a mentor in the field who's not your direct line manager but someone who you can discuss things with that was been shown to be really useful in terms of um, providing a sort of a buffering environment on the workplace mm-hmm. uh, and you know ha- also I'd say having a mentor is really important for getting you through specialized training specialist training absolutely
0: yeah and just that day-to-day practical aspects yeah. of being a doctor and mm-hmm. um, some more questions from the survey so i think you know we've talked a little bit about the stigma that still exists and uh, in the community generally but even um, sometimes even more so in the medical profession surrounding mental health so would you have any practical advice for people who who would like to take some step back from work um, due to mental health issues would they be judged consciously or subconsciously that's apparently seems to be a concern for students.
3: Yeah. Well, I think that self-judgment um, mm. is probably a better word for that. Um, the self-stigma, mm-hmm. thank you, is probably greater than the stigma itself. Um, and some of my work, one, one, of my, one of my side hustles is as um, one of the doctors on the uh, Dasbar Doctor's Health Advisory Service, clinical advisory line. So I go on call and take the calls um, a week a month for um, young, Doctors and medical students in difficulty, and one of the conversations we mostly have um, is around they desperately want to take time off. They can't imagine going into work. They're so they feel so overwhelmed that they're vomiting in the car, um, or and they they can't get out of the lift because they're crying so hard and so on. But they can't they are just mortified at the thought of having to reach out to PGME, Mm -hmm. um, so at a postgraduate level, or to their unit coordinator or subdean at a student level. And then I then routinely have a conversation and we sort of script the conversation about okay, well what will happen when you go and talk to your unit coordinator, what will happen when you go and talk to your your postgraduate medical education. And we usually just come up with a statement that is quite um, uh, centred around the doctor or the student that basically says, I'm having some difficulties, I'm seeking some treatment, um, and in order for me to be able to work well, I think these are the things that I need now, and that you need for me to do now, and anyway, then I schedule we'll a follow up call with these people usually a couple of days later, just to see how they're going in, and it always has gone really well. They've always got into PGME, and and they, they speak to me on the phone and they say, it's almost like they knew what I was going to say. And I say, yep, they did, because this is not the first time they've seen someone like you. <laughs> and they know that it's in their interests as a unit coordinator or as a postgraduate medical officer. If that you are in difficulty, it's much better to invest a couple of weeks now in giving you some leave, than have an adverse clinical incident, which will involve a lot more pain and anguish and stress for everybody concerned. Um, at the treating team level as well as, of course, at the patient level. So they, th- that has been my experience of talking with doctors who have had this conversation. And maybe look, and I guess I'd say that very much, um, now I'm putting my UWA hat back on, I'd say that very much again for when, you, if your students were to speak to a unit coordinator or a sub-dean here, is that it's not the first time we've spoken to a student who's feeling temporarily overwhelmed and needs a little bit of space and we will work with you to craft a solution where you've got some breathing space but you can still achieve your contact hours and still achieve your assessment and so on. We got very good at doing that over 2020, our flexibility, and we're carrying that flexibility forward. Yeah. So from my perspective at a university level, it works quite well. However, I'd be keen to see what Kaylin in particular thinks, if some, as someone who has to deal with PGME, do you feel... And from the friends that you've spoken to, do you do feel that they have been supportive?
2: I think there's a big difference between knowing inside yourself that you are struggling and that you need some space or whatever it is you need and going in and asking uh, from, like, a tangent. I think going in and being like, oh, you know, I need this weekend off for my sister's wedding and it's really important to me and workforce won't give it to you or MedEd rejects something that you really wanted to do. And it can feel like they're rejecting all of that stuff. But if you're not explicit, then they don't know. Yep. And there are literally people who I, like. I know they exist and it's their job to deal with this and they train for it and they're probably really happy when someone walks in and lays out, like, I have this problem, I think this is what I need and they can action it, Brad. But if you... I think the temptation is to find another way to approach it because mm-hmm. you don't want to admit that, you don't want to face that. It's really scary and hard. Yeah. So I think I've seen both happen. Mm-hmm. I think people have felt rejected and um, pushed back at when they go around in a circle, circular way at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've heard of people who've had really good responses as well.
0: Yeah. And it's that normalising those conversations mm. and normalising recognising uh, when you're at your limits as well, which is really important, and hopefully we're getting better at it as a cohort. Um,
3: and I also... Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll stop at a moment. No, but no. I think I'd also encourage people in this situation that, realistically, you might get some pushback, because the first person you talk to might be overworked, and they're having a bad day for some other reason, and they might not be instantly empathic and um, nurturing as you deserve but then they don't know your personal circumstances so likewise you may be thinking about going down to workforce but you know you're having an informal conversation with other junior doctors who are complaining about somebody else that's off and again that's they don't know your own personal circumstances and this comes to it comes back to the concept of self-sacrifice that sometimes you need to put yourself, if not first, but put yourself on a par with other people and then, yes, you're having some time off may impinge upon other people's day-to-day for the next little while, but it's unavoidable. It's what, yeah. it's what needs to happen for the big picture. Yep. Yeah. So you just anticipate that you might be given a hard time that's from so. a small number of people, mm-hmm. but knowing that some time off is the route to recovery, that's the most important thing.
0: Mm-hmm. and those relationships are really important yeah exactly
3: and in the bigger scheme of things you will pay the health system back I remember mm-hmm. I was speaking to one of the early start interns towards the end of last year who was that had, had a, a external personal um, event and was in some distress and we worked out that this person was going to spend 45 years in the health system so taking three days now was probably going to be okay <laughs> um, and Okay, that's a extreme extreme example. But when you look at, you know, a week now versus the twenty years of your life that you will give to the North Metro Health mm-hmm. Services, it's probably okay to ask.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And even that a medical student level of Profit was showing us some research by UWA students who found that those it was those relationships with the GP and the sub dean that was more useful and more helpful than Yeah, I mean, I I
1: realise this is a podcast, so they can't see the um, the the, the paper we have in front of us. But (laughs) that was uh, run by some medical students as Mm -hmm. part of their scholarly activity. This was the MBBS students, but they surveyed MD students. If you want to look it up, it's uh, Ryan, Marley, Steele, Lyons, and Hood. You can look that up and see the article. Essentially, it looked at UWA and looked at the students, uh, and no surprise to me, and hopefully not a surprise to Helen, but the medical students in terms of what they rated as most useful and most easy to access in terms of mental health services was not online issues or etc., but was talking to their own GP or their own psychologist or, or if they had one, their own psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And also reinforced what we all know, which is that the rates of... Uh, mental distress and low-grade and moderate and high-grade mental illness are not unsubstantial in this population.
0: No, absolutely. And um, going along the same pathway about a health system journey I thought we could spend a bit of time um, talking through what a standard health system journey might look like for a medical student um, because as we've discussed there are some unique barriers um, well it's it's yeah. different
1: to uh, the average it person is, like isn't it? when I see a medical doctor or their immediate family in my say private practice uh, I either see them really early in their journey like day one parents notice something think this must be depression or something whatever and send and they if i see a mother and the father and the and the adolescent in there i know it's probably a medical student family at some degree Mm -hmm. because they pick things up really early or they come in really late because they as we've heard earlier on they've kind of tried to do things themselves Mm -hmm. the stigma of coming in has been an issue they worry that the training program people won't believe them or they're going to let their friends down Mm -hmm. from you know having to cover extra shifts and all those sort of things and they come in too late. And then we treat them as, sometimes we, we try not to, but there's the, there's the tendency to try to treat them as special patients, yeah. you know, to assume that we don't have to go through the basics of consenting, what yeah. this medication is doing, et cetera, because, of course, they listened to my lecture on pharmacology <laughs> back in, in medical school, <laughs> so they know all these sort of things. Um, and remember. And remember. <laughs> for some do, some don't. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, health professionals in general in this field are... Um, are not standard it, it's different mm-hmm. to the general public um, and we have ma- we make assumptions that don't always uh, hold true and so we have to take a step back often and say okay you know forget for a second that you're a medical doctor or whatever what are the you know you have issues just like the rest of us a mm-hmm. relationship with your spouse issue or you know or a medical problem or something else that's going on yeah. and let's go back to baseline and try to get this comprehensive um, history
2: okay. yeah
0: Dr. Hooper, what's your experience been as a medical student and as a um, intern doctor? Have you do you find yourself um, taking a step back before
2: you go see your GP? Or? Yeah, there's definitely the concern that all sounds stupid, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I try, like I try not to, and I try and make sure that I'm at least going for preventative things yeah. um, because that way, if I, because you you obviously don't want your first time you rock up. Mm-hmm. For you to f- be feeling really anxious or silly or anything, mm-hmm. so do you, at least do you if i medical terms for things, <laughs>
1: like describe things like a mess, like you had to do in medical school, um, or, or use. I find it really hard to
2: tell. Yeah. Like I wait until I'm explicitly asked what I do before yeah, I confess. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I guess trying to build up that relationship with things that I don't find threatening to talk about, like yeah. preventative health. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: absolutely. Doctor Wilcox, as a GP, what's your experience been?
3: Of having, um, of when you first see students as a as a as a person, yeah. So, I I I see doctors of all um, uh, ages and stages, and Mm -hmm. including so in that I include uh, medical medical students, Um, and I think I'm well schooled by my own GP, who is a very assertive uh, uh, South African um, uh, doctor, and um, has sort of quite um, pronounced skills of prioritisation and crisis management as per- to South African training. And the very first time she met you she, she went, "I'm the boss, you're the patient," <laughs> and um, very much, uh, uh, very much said that she's keen for my keen for my input, but she wants to be the lead clinician in the room. Uh, I think she actually said that. Um, well, you know you're, yeah. you said I, she said it, it and for B individually that worked very very well because it was very yeah. clear role definition um, and I think look when I do my initial intros with new doctor patients I tend to say the standard things about you know how I will bill you how you will get access to me mm-hmm. after hours and, and basically set up that it's collaborative but at the end of the day I'm not going to do something I wouldn't do to somebody else mm-hmm. um, and I think then, I think that gives permission for people to come in and say, Dr. Helen, I've got this, I have no idea what it means, but I've decided I've got porphyria. It's like, okay, that is fine. Mm-hmm. We will manage that. We will deconstruct that. Um, and look, it's a, but at the same time, I think you have to be very respectful to your medical student, your junior doctor colleagues, because, you know, they do have some, or patients said that, they do have, we do have a lot of knowledge. You know, it's that like people often apologise for Googling their signals. It's like, no, no, you are gaining knowledge, which is all contributing to the diagnostic process yeah. and the diagnostic reasoning. So um, I think when it, so I guess to, what, what does this get down to? I think when, uh, as a medical student, when you go in and see a, a doctor, I think it's okay to be upfront and say you're a medical student. And um, I would hope that the person you're seeing is, you know, encourages you to share your ideas about what you think is going on. Mm-hmm. But I hope also that they don't, um, that they don't assume that you have knowledge yeah. or experience yeah. out of scope. Yeah,
1: I agree. Mm-hmm. I think it's useful not to pretend that you're not a medical student or not a, not a doctor, but no. also not necessarily to come in saying, I'm a doctor, you know, like, listen to me. Because, mm. like, sometimes, you know, we're trying to explain, you know, uh, things about, I don't know, medications, and then I realise that person is, the, you know you know, the head of uh, pharmacology or whatever. Just, we have know, all have had that experience, uh, yes. and <laughs> all, Yeah, you taught me those lectures. I remember that now. Um, yes. So, you know, yes. so, you know th- and it helps you get a sort of shared baseline and go through um, that dialogue. But, yeah, mm. you've got to work together. Yeah. And, and, look, most all medical practitioners I, I think I see the coming through and medical students are respectful of yep. you know my yep. time and yep. and I'm not trying to sort of score points or see how much they know they're coming because they've had an issue that's got them over the threshold to want to come and see me mm-hmm. yeah. and they're wanting uh, a, an honest dialogue yes. yeah
3: yeah, and I, I, I think it does help to seek out someone who sees other uh, see students sees medical students mm-hmm. sees doctors so, yeah. um, and if you find uh, someone perhaps who, you ca- who isn't a good fit for you. That's a phrase I use a lot about doctors and yep. patients. Um, it's a fit. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not anything you're doing wrong. It's just if, they don't, if you don't get an instant feeling that you can have an honest dialogue, then find somebody else. You know, we usually get three quotes for any sort of procedural work we want done on our houses. You should potentially get three quotes on whoever you're going to get to manage your mental health. If the first quote is the best, you can come back to that person. Um, that assumes you have ample time and so on. So I don't want yeah. to minimise the challenge, the access issues with getting in. But mm-hmm. just because just because your first if someone's first interaction with a GP or a health professional or clinical psychologist, if they come away from that with without a good feeling that this is going to take me somewhere, don't be disheartened. Try again. Seek again. Get a recommendation from a friend. Get a recommendation of the um, Doctors' Health Advisory Service, GP, Doctors for Doctors website. Um, go and see someone at the um, university medical centre and as a GP, ask them who would you go and see if you needed a GP (laughs) and do a little bit of due diligence because you deserve someone who's
0: really good for you Absolutely, like everyone Um, and if a medical student does reach out to you as a GP what when would you consider a psychiatrist referral and um, how does that process?
3: Um, I think that's a good question I think it comes back to what was talking about before about mm. impairments. So, yeah. um, so a primary primary care scope for mental health is if there's a minimal number of diagnoses um, and so you know, there's not too many comorbid conditions. So a, a relatively straightforward, say, anxiety presentation or mood disorder presentation um, is or, or stress, there's a reason why my sort of main assessment scale that I use is the DAS, depression S, Anxiety and stress scales, because that's what most of my people have. I think when, when there are features that go outside that, so there might be psychotic features or features of bipolar disorder or features of um, some entrenched personality issues, that's something where I may bring on board another opinion. It might be for another GP, but with although first, if the pharmacology is out of scope for me, I'm going to bring on a psychiatrist pretty early. And I think also, but if there's diagnostic doubt, if the person's just not getting better, if I can't get them tolerating medications, um, if the um, if the if if or if there is if they are very unwell, so you know if there is you know um, suicidal ideation which is becoming more concrete and you know becoming more intrusive, then it's time for sure to step in, or colleague, and. Um, uh, look at uh, providing more intensive therapy, and that may mean more scaled-up pharmacotherapy, or it might be revisiting a diagnosis diagnosis from a different lens, or it might be a period of inpatient care for assessment and treatment, or it might be a period of access to intensive outpatient courses like the day hospitals. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say, Sean? Sure. Yeah,
1: although i would broaden it a little bit. I mean, certainly there's, in my experience, a range of interest in mental health from GPs, yeah. uh, and there are some GPs who I've been you know, involved with in the past who've Really not been interested at all in mental health, and I'm sure they're great at obstetrics or something else. But that mm-hmm. wasn't really their area of interest or skill mm-hmm. or whatever, and that's fine. Um, and there are other GPs who are managing literally patients in the community who I, sh- I think, my goodness, they are doing a fantastic job. And as my whole team, we'd, we would struggle to man- manage these patients and everything in between. So it's obviously that, that goodness of fit. Um, But by the time when they come to see, so I work in public and private sectors, Um, the public sector is still driven by um, acuity and emergency department presentations and no longer can I do direct admissions to the hospital here under my care, uh, avoiding um, the emergency department patients will come in regardless through the ED, through the mental health observation area or similar. We will de-identify medical students and um, a medical practitioner, as much as we can. So, we, we use a code 50, which essentially means that certain only restricted number of people have access to those medical records, to the solace records, which are our mental health um, public um, database notes. Um, and, you know, the names are off all those sort of identifying forms. But there are still people in those services, you know, who are uh, 99% of the time will, will, be, will uh, act responsibly and, you know, and confidentially. And I'm really impressed by them know the, my colleagues in terms of the ability to maintain that level of confidentiality for uh, medical doctors and, mm. and students um, it's, um, it's a real credit to, to the profession. Mm. Getting in is often a matter of you know kind of being unwell enough to come but to be honest by the time medical students and medical doctors come to the public sector usually they need to be in hospital, probably needed to be in hospital long before that to be honest, mm. or managed in, in the public or Sorry, into as voluntary patients, predominantly. Private sector is a bit different. Uh, is a bit strange in that if a GP, like Helen does refer to psychiatrists, we're one of the few disciplines where we will look at the referral first and decide whether we take it. Most mm-hmm. professionals just kind of add it to their, to their list. Mm-hmm. And that's deciding whether it's, whether it's gonna be a good fit to us or whether predominantly, if, such as myself, I don't do inpatients in private, so I'm thinking this person might need inpatient, it's not gonna be for me. Yeah. or it may be you need a specialist in a particular sub-area, and I suggest, how about you try Jenny or Jack or someone else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's there's still very substantial wait lists yeah. to seeing specialist psychiatrists mm-hmm. of, broadly speaking, in the adult sector, the majority of psychiatrists in practice in Western Australia are no longer taking any new patients whatsoever. They're uh, completely full. This yeah, is pre-COVID. It's yeah. much worse since. Yeah. Adolescence is even... Fortunately, Even for our mm, listeners, they will be on that group, but yes. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but it's, you know, but, so it's, but, you know, we will prioritise and try to fit people in. And, yeah. you know, I will try to ideally move it to the beginning of the day or the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and we will look at a list because I have a number of medical people and I'm thinking, oh, uh, I might move those two around on my wait mm-hmm. list so that they're not in the waiting room at the same time.
0: Yeah, um, that's really
1: important,
0: um, yes. Yeah, Confidentiality. Um, yeah. And yeah. Yeah, so I guess... In terms of um, access, there's a lot of support there, and there's a lot Look, there of team is, effort.
1: There is, I mean, the teams are, you know, keen yep. to um, to be you know, to be yeah. re- to, keen to be involved. Yeah. I think, you know, I heard as an anecdote that when um, Medicare was established, they had an assumption that doctors would bulk bill other doctors, and hence that was a, a discussion when Medicare was um, mm. uh, launched, you know, mm. early on. That doesn't. Uh, uh, okay. Happen all the time. Although I would say informally that most of my colleagues would be bulk billing medical students, mm-hmm. um, yep. so I don't suggest you need to necessarily worry about the cost. I mean that's a privilege rather than a you know a, a given. Yeah. yeah. But that's certainly uh, my observation. Um, mm. um, yeah.
2: yeah.
3: I suppose one of the other things with um, coming out psychiatrist referrals is that like that there there are some psychiatrists who have endless wait lists. Mm. Um, But there are others who work in specific fields of um, uh, psychiatry that by definition, they've got turnover. Mm. So some of the psychiatrists who work a lot in the perinatal space, Mm. uh, they have turnover. Um, And so a, a, a fair number of the young females I see are in that sort of preconception or periconception period of their life. And the, one of the reasons to involve a psychiatrist is they w- want information about medication, safety in and pregnancy and, and um, Ill- illness management during pregnancy. So there's, there's ways and means. There's Absolutely. lots of ways and means. I certainly see yeah. um,
1: a lot of junior doctors who have yep. been holding off and having, starting a family when they're in medical school, not always, mm. but often yep. happens. And then yep. they graduate and think, OK, well, now's the time. Uh, yep. And so I um, uh, often see a lot of and in yeah. that sort of yeah. mm-hmm. And the and other things things thing about
3: if, if a particular psychiatrist, if there's access issues for a, a couple of months or so, they, they can often give interim a, have a bit of a case yeah. discussion and give you some interim advice. Yeah. So there's always ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah. I mean, I I, if the GP calls me, and hopefully for most of my colleagues and says, look, can I just have a chat to you about a particular patient, uh, a particular issue or, you know, without getting names mm-hmm. or whatever, um, I'll always take those calls. Mm-hmm. And I think my, most, of the vast majority of my colleagues will.
0: Well, yeah. That's really helpful to know. Um, so just to wrap this conversation up a little bit, we've talked about barriers and we've talked about um, the resources that might be available. Uh, what are some possible strategies that students and young doctors can um, can apply in recognising our own limitations and those triggers and recognising when we need help and need to reach out? Dr. Huber, I might start with you.
2: Um, I think everyone has their own warning signs. I think generically um, sleep's a big one. Mm Once your sleep starts getting disturbed, Um, if you find, uh, like, your relationships with people are changing, I think that's another big one. Um, But I think, again, I think it's very individual. I think that particularly in the lead up to your exams, which are coming up soon... Ish. Mm -hmm. Not too soon. Sorry. (laughs) Triggered everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Just uh, stopping for a second and checking is really big. And I think that if you are going to take time out, Mm -hmm. then you need to commit to that time out as hard as you would commit to the studying time because otherwise it's it's wasted and you'll feel worse. Um, And during that time, it might be a good moment to check how you're going. Uh, internally but I think yeah identify the things in your life that you are not willing to have change as a result of exams mm. and stress um, mm. and if they start being affected that's probably a good time to take a step back absolutely that's a really good point
0: being as disciplined with your mm. time out and yeah well like med students we're good at discipline yeah. so like commit to it <laughs> <laughs> good point um, any final discussion points before we wrap
1: up? I mean, I just okay. add that um, you know we have selected medical students to be the best and the brightest of applicants that we have been okay. able to um, identify, and we've really um, to become a medical student at this university and at other universities is a real uh, success and a real challenge to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm confident that you have the intellectual resources and, and usually substantial emotional resources to be able to detect these problems in other people. That's part mm-hmm. of what we train you in this in this university to do. And you've certainly got the intellect to do that. If you just have the um, allow yourself to sort of focus in, inside rather than outside occasionally and say, hold on, I think I'm as bad or as worse as what I would have considered others to be, then mm-hmm. that's probably a good metric to start with.
0: Yeah, it's hard to, You know, that imposter syndrome comes every now and then, and that's a topic on its own, but um, it's good to remember that sometimes, yeah. Dr Cox.
3: Um, We're having this conversation directed about people identifying um, signs of difficulties in themselves, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, I think I'd encourage um, everyone, and I know so many students always do this, or do this already, is to just, you know, keep an eye for the person next to you Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because, your comment to them may be the one that um, allows them to see themselves objectively. So your your kind word um, may be um, yeah, you know, it may be a real enabler for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there can be some criticism around things like are you okay, Day? Because the next part of the conversation is well, I'm not. Well, what are you going to do about <laughs> it? <laughs> but it's it's more harking back to. Um, I think if we have at the junior doctor and medical student level if we build a generation who are a- accepting and um, enabling of you know help seeking behaviors and normalizing of it then that will then help the generation below them and the generation below them I genuinely see we are starting to see that culture change mm-hmm. in medicine for how well um, we look after ourselves um, I don't want to make too much sunshine and rainbows. Um, The health system issues that Sean pointed out at the beginning are very real and very telling. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the more we can have regard for each other um, and kindness and compassion for each other, the better we'll all be.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for you know participating in this. We could talk about all this all day, <laughs> I think you've worked that out. Yeah. I can listen to it all day. You know. um, it's been so insightful and valuable and I'm sure our listeners will think the same. I'd also like to thank everyone who participated in our anonymous survey and put forward those questions and comments. It can take a lot to reflect and acknowledge those feelings and put those concerns forward. So we really do appreciate it. Um, I hope this discussion has helped us all feel a little more empowered and comfortable in speaking about mental health issues amongst our own peer groups and seeking and accessing the help when we need it and you know, together moving towards a more positive and help seeking environment. We do acknowledge though that this can be quite a heavy topic, so please make sure that after listening to this episode you do take some time out for yourself. And if you do need any support, please reach out for help. A very important resource to be aware of is Lifeline and that's 131114 another very valuable resource to be aware of is doctors for doctors who provide support for any doctor or medical student across australia and also have a confidential telehealth service specifically for doctors and medical students who are struggling with their mental health and that number is 1 374 377 i'd once again like to thank all our panelists for being so kind and generous with your time and being so open with our discussion today i'm sure our listeners will find it as helpful and valuable as i have thank you so much for joining us for this discussion thank you
3: pleasure thanks for having us bye
0: thank you for listening to our podcast you can find this episode as well as all our other episodes and their transcripts on our website www.medtalkpod.com You can also like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash medtalkpod to stay updated about all the new episodes and any new learning resources. You can also send us episode ideas and feedback on our website or our email medtalkpod at outlook.com.